This is an ABC podcast. Tarlof, a lover, and warm Pacific greetings. It's Wednesday the 14th of June and you're listening to Pacific Beat here on ABC Radio Australia. I'm Talia Oletia. Today on the program, is Fiji's coalition party starting to fray? An urgent meeting was held yesterday after the kingmakers following the December election Sedelpa expressed disappointment over unfulfilled promises. PNG's Prime Minister James Marape says he supports Japan's plans to dump Alps-treated nuclear wastewater from the Fukushima disaster into the Pacific and growers in Australia say they'll be forced to employ fewer Pacific workers following a shake-up to the palm scheme. The changes to the dead and guidelines as currently proposed, particularly with regards to the minimum hours, will mean that we'll have no choice but to reduce the number of palm workers engaged in our workforce and that's going to have a really significant impact on our relationship with the Pacific. Those stories and more coming up this morning on Pacific Beat. Fiji's Deputy Prime Minister says it should not be easier for Lithuanians to enter Australia than it is for Fijians and for Latvians to travel to Aotearoa, New Zealand than it is for Solomon Islanders. Professor Bimam Prasad reignited the calls for visa-free travel between Australia, New Zealand and Pacific Island states during a speech at the Pacific Update Conference in Suva yesterday. He's also the Finance Minister and told the conference visa-free travel is the starting point of a truly united Pacific. And Professor Prasad joins us now, Bulavanaka. Bulavanaka, pleasure to join you. Professor Prasad, why do you believe visa-free travel is so important? Well, uh, it is in a broader context of uh, having a much more meaningful, deeper uh, integration uh, of the Pacific region with Australia and New Zealand. I mean, Australia and New Zealand are an integral part of the Pacific, They're an integral part of many of the regional institutions, including the Forum. And I think, uh, you know, uh, we have been talking about, you know, uh, deeper and more meaningful regional integration for a long time. Uh, we We haven't uh, achieved uh, much of what we have talked about for many years. And so perhaps, you know, the time is right now to, uh, in, in the new uh, geopolitical, geoeconomic context, to look at uh, this idea and also to move ahead to achieve uh, a, a fully uh, integrated region. And uh, I believe that, you know, visa-free travel uh, could be the time now. And would that go both ways, that it would be, um, you know, if Australians or New Zealanders wanted to go to the Pacific, they wouldn't need a visa either, much like a kind of EU kind of operation? Yes, precisely. I mean, that's what I meant when I talked about, you know, visa-free travel. You know, I meant that we need to make it easier for for, uh, Australian New Zealand uh, people as well as, you know, people from the Pacific, you know, and I'm talking about this in the context of the ease of, uh, of of doing business, you know, the ease of uh, thinking about investment, let let businesses, you know, uh, grow, uh, Australia and New Zealand businesses grow in the Pacific, Pacific, you know, businesses grow uh, themselves in the Australian New Zealand market. And, and that is what we have been trying to achieve, you know, through various trade negotiations. Uh, you know, Pesa Plus is still languishing. 
So, uh, you know, maybe, you know, there is a binding constraint that is holding back on some of this very, very meaningful regional integration. And uh, I believe that the visa-free travel could be one of the binding constraints, you know, holding back on that kind of, you know, integration, which is so essential uh, to address many of the challenges facing the Pacific Islands today. And when it comes to visa travel, what are the challenges that um, people and businesses face? Is it, a, is it cost? Is it time to get those visas approved? What are those challenges? I, I think uh, there is a combination of those challenges, and you, you rightly put it, you know, it's, it's cost, it's time, it's uh, documentation, it's, uh, you know, uh, getting uh, yourself around. Uh, you know, to do uh, your travels, you know, whether it's for visiting. I mean, we have to remember that many of the Pacific Island countries are deeply, deeply engaged, uh, you know, from a people-to-people point of view. I mean, if you talk about, uh, you go to any corner of the uh, country in Fiji, for example, you know, you will find their relatives, their friends, their associates, you know, uh, in, in parts of Australia and New Zealand. Uh, and so there is a very strong people-to-people relationship that already exists. And, and sometimes, you know, these requirements, you know, create this really uh, difficult, you know, divide, you know, between these people and, and the conduct of business as well, you know, trade as well. So I'm, I'm looking at this from a, a much broader perspective uh, in terms of making sure that, you know, as a region, you know, we are able to achieve a lot of the objectives that we've been talking about for a long time, you know, through various regional institutions, you know, forum included. And, and so perhaps, you know, this is, this is a, a time now uh, to think through this carefully and, and work out how we can, and maybe this is a binding constraint that's holding back on some of the other mm-hmm. processes that might ease uh, the, that integration. Mm. You're listening to Pacific Beat. My guest is Fiji's Deputy Prime Minister and Finance Minister, Professor Bimam Prasad. As you said there then, Professor Prasad, this has been an issue for some time and an Australian diplomat who was at the conference um, said that it is under consideration. Is that good enough and what would you like to see moving forward so this doesn't just continue to be like an ongoing talk topic and rather we might see some action? Well, I'm a great believer in, in the, the, uh, the relationship that we've built over so many years with Australia and New Zealand. And, and we have to understand that Australia and New Zealand are great partners. I mean, the aid motivation to the Pacific has always been good. The effectiveness and how it's implemented, that's another matter. So, so there, is, there is a lot uh, of commonality, a lot of things going for. Uh, the Pacific Island countries with Australia and New Zealand. I mean, Australia and New Zealand, you know, particularly Australia, has been a great advocate of, of uh, Pacific Island countries in international and, and other institutions, you know, such as the World Bank and the Asian Development Bank. And, and uh, you know, during COVID, you know, we saw that, we see that during disasters. So we, we really appreciate, you know, the, the contribution that Australia and New Zealand make, you know, through those processes. But I think in the long run, you know, to address the the critical or the existential uh, threat of climate change, you know, to Pacific Island economies, to the livelihood, to health, uh, you know, we, we need a much more integrated region 
not just uh, from, from the geopolitical point of view or the Indo-Pacific strategy point of view, but purely from an economic point of view, a social point of view, uh, this sort of integration may go a long way to achieving the objectives of development that ultimately will lead to the improvement in the quality of life of people. As I've said, Mm -hmm. as a region, you know, we are faced with some serious challenges, you know, whether you talk about uh, health, you know, NCDs, uh, uh, you know, lifestyle diseases, whether you talk about violence against women, uh, you know, as a region, you know, we are not doing very well. And and I think uh, it is time to think through uh, a broader, a more meaningful uh, way of engaging and integrating uh, our, ourselves uh, with Australia and New Zealand, who have always been an integral partner for the Pacific. Mm, indeed. And finally, Professor Prasad, while I've got you, another issue that's been um, getting some local traction is uh, a story among the partners in the coalition government with the Social <laughs> Democratic, you know you sure, know exactly sure. where I'm going, don't you? Um, yeah, with the Sedelpa yeah. Party complaining um, that, you know, some commitments that were promised to them have okay. not yet been fulfilled. Um, what is your position? And, you know, the, the, the question is, is that coalition unity starting to fray? Well, I mean, you know, as you know, in Australia, you know, you have had coalition governments, you know, you had coalition governments in New Zealand, you know, around the world. Coalition governments, you know, have their own challenges. But I think uh, what what was blown out of proportion by some elements of local media was uh, a, a expression of, uh, of disagreement on the way in which uh, certain things were happening in terms of, you know, uh, how Sudapa felt elements within the party felt. And so it wasn't, uh, and and we had a very amicable, uh, happy meeting yesterday just to uh, respond to some of those concerns in the media. But I can tell you, you know, right from the beginning and till now, the coalition is very strong. Uh, Yesterday, you know, we, uh, the the Sadalpa party stalwarts made a very, very strong public commitment uh, that we've been in government for five months, almost six months, and will be there for the next three and a half years. So uh, absolutely no doubt the coalition is strong, committed, and, you know, we are busy uh, cleaning up the mess that we've inherited from the last 16 years of bad governance. Professor Biman Prasad, we'll have to leave it there. Vinaka Vakalevi, thank you so much for joining Pacific Beat this morning. Pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. That was Fiji's Deputy Prime Minister and Finance Minister as well, Professor Biman Prasad. Pacific Beat. Union and unions and farmers are at odds over changes to the way foreign workers are employed on Australian farms. Next year, workers from the Pacific must be offered 30 hours of work per week without the ability to average hours over the duration of employment. National Rural Reporter Kath Sullivan has more. Under the Pacific Australia Labor Mobility or PALM scheme, workers must be offered 30 hours of work per week. Currently, the hours can be averaged over the duration of the employment, which is typically nine months for farm workers. But new guidelines introduced by the federal government will mean that from July next year, employers will no longer be able to average the hours and instead must ensure 30 hours per week is offered. Australian Fresh Produce Alliance Chief Executive Claire McClellan says farmers need to average the hours. 
The challenge with 30 hours a week is that when there's a weather event or rain or extreme heat, we lose a couple of days of being able to safely have workers access our production sites. What that means is that despite there being work, av work available across a longer period of time, we can't actually get in to the farm to meet those requirements. So our challenge is we need to be able to average those work hours to meet our seasonal fluctuations. As of February, there were more than 35,000 workers on the Palm Scheme in Australia, the majority employed in farming. Claire McClellan says farmers will look to other labour sources as a result of the change. The changes to the deading guidelines as currently proposed, particularly with regards to the minimum hours, will mean that we'll have no choice but to reduce the number of palm workers engaged in our workforce. And that's going to have a really significant impact on our relationship with the Pacific, which is something that we've built over 10 years through the program. So it's particularly disappointing and it's particularly disappointing that it will force employers to turn away from a regulated visa program and to focus again on employing backpackers. Outgoing National Secretary of the Australian Workers' Union, Dan Walton, believes the changes are fair. Yeah, absolutely. What we know is there's some flexibility built into this in terms of key times to be able to harvest. But the main point is if you're about to commence your harvest and you've got an engagement with a large number of farm workers to come in, um, that there will be, uh, again, 12 months notice for everyone to get prepared, um, but there will be a requirement to make sure they at least get 30 hours of work. Now, it is unfair entirely to say that we're going to bring workers in from the other side of the world and sit them um, on their backside to get paid two hours or an hour or four hours um, because I didn't actually get organised and ready to get the harvest underway at the time they arrived. Essentially, that is saying that you're poorly prepared, poorly organised and putting in place poor farming practices. And what we say is workers are not uh, slaves. They're not, you know, this tradable commodity. You need to look after working people and give them some dignity and respect, and this will hopefully go some way to fix that. He says if farmers don't like it, then they should look to hire local workers. I'm soon to depart my role at the AWU, and uh, I won't miss some of the hysteria and ridiculous uh, suggestions that come through from, from this industry from time to time. Um, I'll say that much. I remember when we got the piece rate case sorted, there were a number of people who were going to be unable to operate their farms. It was going to be too hard, too complicated. And lo and behold, everyone is operating and we've cleared up a whole lot of uh, rorts that were in the system. Now, the same will apply here. There's a bit of hysteria about people, oh, I'm not going to be able to operate. I'm not going to engage palm workers. Well, if you don't want to engage palm workers, then you need to focus on what I've been calling for for a long period of time, that is develop opportunities for local workers to work on your farms. This is a sensible and reasonable change to make sure that workers do get a reasonable amount of um, pay if you are bringing them over from the other parts of the world to work in our backyard. Changes to the palm guidelines will also require employers to appoint a welfare support person within 200 kilometres of a worker placement. The requirement will see one welfare support person appointed for every 120 palm workers. That was Kath Sullivan reporting there. And as you heard, there are big changes planned. Valencia Pacchetti is a Pacifica consultant and welfare supporter based in New South Wales. And she joins the program now. Good morning to you. Good morning. Now, Valencia, what do you make of this 30 hours per week for seasonal horticultural workers? And how do you see it potentially impacting um, workers from the Pacific? 
Look, the, the, the way I see it, um, over the past 11 years when I was volunteering my time in helping the workers, navigating their way around, you know, living in Australia, navigating their way around like um, uh, work-related issues and, and stuff like that, I have seen many contracts where it has been stipulated that they will be doing 30 hours minimum. So in, but when, by the time they get here, they're not even making those hours. And I understand in the horticulture industry, sometimes, you know, it, seasons don't um, account for the 30 hours. So they get, they get being told one thing and signing contracts for, um, uh, you know, with the idea that they will be making at least 30 hours minimum a week and coming to Australia not even meeting the 30 hours. Mm. And obviously, um, you know, as anyone who's done any shift work that you've got hours, when you're promised a certain amount of hours, you kind of budget or you say that this is what that money will go for. And then when you don't get that that money, it can have, um, you know, a lot of flow on effects. And we know that a lot of these Pacific workers are sending remittance, remittances back home. So how much of an impact is it when, you know, they don't get those those hours that they were promised? It has a significant, significant impact. I have spoken to many workers who are crying out for help. They, um, you know, they have um, a, a set of um, deductions that come out of their pay and then they have the ongoing deductions. So there's, there's certain deductions that finishes within 12 weeks of when they arrive in Australia. And then the ongoings, obviously, that uh, with their rent, um, utilities, food, um, sending money like a remittance back home, um, when they rely on that, um, on money to be able to like not only sustain their living here, but supporting their family back home, and they don't get that, it has a significant impact in 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 their life, their livelihood, their family's livelihood, you know. Um, and a lot of them are, are quick to discourage. They feel discouraged and, and working and not knowing where to turn, how, how to go about um, dealing with, with the issues. And so what impact would it then have as as we heard, you know, some um, growers saying that they simply won't hire Pacific workers? What then impact does that have when there's no work at all? Well, they, look, they, 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 the impact would have would have to be um, uh, we have to create work or um, for, for the locals. If they're not hiring people from overseas, then we have to do something. We have to do something for the, the local the local workers. The, 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 the farmers have to then give an incentive for, for, for people to, you know, want to work in the farm because you, we all know it's not easy. It's not easy. I've spoken to many workers. They have, you know, Vanuatu people, for example, we're horticulture people. You know, the um, we have I've, I've seen a significant impact of the old curriculum in Vanuatu compared to the new curriculum, where literacy level has has um, um, there's there's a spike in literacy level with the new curriculum. So coming here and understanding the way of life here, it's it's um um. Uh, it's been very, very difficult. So, mm-hmm. in you know, for for the workers, it's um, 
um, they all they want to do is work. Mm-hmm. And if they're given the, the, the time or the, the time to work, they'll be obviously happy to work. And um, a lot of them are discouraged and a lot of them have disengaged from the program because they're so desperate. They're so desperate to make money to make money and, and support their families back home. Mm. So I think, you know, um, it's something's got to give. Mm. You're listening to Valencia Pachetti. She is a Pacifica consultant and welfare supporter based in New South Wales. I We often talk about, um, you know, the Pacific workers who come here on the, uh, these schemes and, you know, we hear what the growers or the farmers or the people who employ them have and there's um, obviously there's often been a kind of discrepancy in terms of communication, in terms of, you know, the Pacific workers knowing what they are entitled to, to being able to stand up for their rights, all of these different things. So, you know, while while it says that, you know, Pacific workers must be 30 hours a week, um, you know, we have to ensure that that is enforced and, you know, there is a policing of, of some way. Yes. So how can this be a win-win for both sides? You know, on the one hand, we've got the farmers who, you know, need the workers. We've got the people from the Pacific who want to work and want the money. So how can we make it a win-win for everyone? Oh, look, uh, the, the the way I said, a lot of the workers have said to me, um, they, you know, as I've mentioned before, they just want to work. And I've um, last week I had, um, I had a meeting with, with, with some MPs from Vanuatu and I've said to them, look, you know, the thing is, where um if there's a way we can help the workers say if they um they come with a um a, a contractor and they can't meet those hours then they you know there has to be um a way where the the, the contractors can um sort of uh, maybe ship the workers to another farm i know a lot of the contractors do they have um relationships with um a lot of the other farmers where um, they send workers to the other farms. But because of their visas, they're not allowed to work for anybody else other than their contractor. So if there's something that they can have, I don't know, some kind of leniency in terms of making at least those 30 hours a week, that would help them tremendously. Not only them, but their family as well. Mm, indeed. And, you know, they we often say that, you know, backpackers who are employed to do the same work often have better protection. So obviously this will be an ongoing conversation. But Valencia Paquetti, thank you so much for joining Pacific Beat this morning and talking us through it. No worries at all. Thank you so much. Thank you. That that was Valencia Paquetti. She is a Pacifica consultant and welfare supporter based in New South Wales. Let's find out what's making news across the region today. And I'm joined by producer Kyle Evans. Good morning, Kyle. Good morning, Talia. Let's start in PNG, where the Prime Minister James Marape says that he supports Japan's intentions to release that treated nuclear wastewater from the Fukushima disaster into the Pacific Ocean. Yeah, it's an interesting one. So he says his decision is based on scientific information and discussions with the current and former Japanese Prime Ministers. 
He said he'd been advised by both the leaders that the release is in accordance uh, with all standards and complies with the highest safety regulations, both human and environmental. But what's interesting, Tyler, is his statement seems to contradict an earlier call by PNG's um, uh, fisheries minister, Jelta Wong, urging Japan not to go ahead with it. He called for PIF leaders to sign a petition uh, to stop that dumping back in March, you might remember. And what's been the reaction um, to Mr Marape's statement? Yeah, there, there is a little bit of pushback. Uh, there is worry from the uh, PNG, um, the Centre of Environmental Law and Community Rights, that the move sets a bad precedence and poses a dangerous risk. Uh, they say he should not, he should not be supporting this plan at all. And of course, um, Mr Marape is not the first Pacific leader who has come out to say that they would support it, provided that you know it is safe. But there has been questions about you know what it means for standing regionally. Um, obviously, mm. this plan is going to happen over the next four decades. So um, I have seen commentary online in regards to Mr Marape's statement that, you know, on an issue like this, then that regionalism <laughs> is important. Um, let's go to Guam now, where thousands of people are out of work following Typhoon Mawa. Yeah, that appears to be the case, uh, according to the Guam Department of Labor Director, David De La Soila, who was quoted in the Guam Daily Post yesterday. He said 7,000 people are currently unemployed. Uh, and he submitted a funding request for $27 million uh, in disaster assistance to the US. Luckily, though, plenty of prep work had been done prior to the storm. They obviously uh, knew what was about to hit them. Uh, According to the article, um, 7,000 people, that had actually been the estimated number uh, while preparing this request. So that's being able to be, be fast-tracked, which is good. And uh, it once once approved, it will mean relief benefits will be paid to victims up until November. Mm, yes, we spoke to Joan Agan Chafras from KUAM News on Monday about that recovery um, from Typhoon Mawa. And, of course, the Governor, Lu Leung Guerrero, had requested um, that support from um, President Biden. Of course, Guam is a Pacific US territory. Um, so, you know, it's will that be enough for them to get back on their feet considering you know what they're going through yeah well that that will be the uh the, well, the 27 million dollar question i guess um he said some businesses are obviously going to take uh, longer than others uh, i mean some still haven't even started picking up the pieces yet um but he says the amount should be enough uh he anticipates a lot of people entering the program in the first month or so uh before it begins to slowly taper off as utilities and, uh, and jobs come back online mm. and finally kyle in some sporting news vanuatu rugby league league wants to enter a team at the Pacific Games. Yeah, that's right. So uh, the Secretary has revealed to RNZ that they are seeking funds to enable them to uh, to make the Pacific Games trip. And if successful, it would mark the first time that they have ever competed at the sport, um, which the Solomon Islands have actually chosen to include this time round. However, they do need some funding. Uh, according to the article, the Vanuatu Amateur Sports Association and National Olympic Committee might be restrained from sending them just simply due to budget constraints. Uh, Therefore, they do need to find another backer, uh, which might be a little bit hard given Rugby League is only a new game in Vanuatu. It only, I believe, started there back in 2011 on Santo. Uh, but some representation at the Pacific Games would obviously help the game grow a lot. So let's hope they can uh, they can find a way over there. Indeed. Kyle, thank you so much for bringing us those stories. Thank you, Talia. That was Kyle Evans with some of the stories making news today. 
For centuries, Pacific Islanders have been sharing stories across the region. Stories from the Pacific is a weekly program that honours that tradition, allowing you to hear in-depth personal stories from sports people to farmers, artists to teachers, activists to entrepreneurs with one thing in common, their Pacific heritage and a unique and incredible story to tell. Stories from the Pacific, Wednesday mornings at 9.30 PNG time on ABC Radio Australia. You're listening to Pacific Beat here on ABC Radio Australia. My name is Talia Olatia. Let's turn back to Fiji now, where the ruling coalition has been tested after some grumblings among the political parties that formed government after last December's election. It was triggered by members of the Social Democratic Liberal Party, or SIDELPA, after they expressed disappointment over what they saw were unfulfilled promises. ABC's rather Fiji reporter, Lithe Mavono joins us now. Bula Vanaka. Lithe, thanks for joining the program. Talofa and Bula to you, Talia. Lithe, first of all, take us through what um, prompted this meeting. So a few days ago, the um, Social Democratic Liberal Party, or SIDELPA, um, basically uh, very publicly made known their discontent. And as you know, the uh, SIDELPA had been uh, quite a dominant opposition party for the longest time. But at the 2022 elections, they garnered only three votes. It was um, uh, almost a, a complete difference. It was a complete difference from the dominance that they enjoyed. However, it did give them kingmaker position. And in that negotiations, they had quite a long list of demands, of, of coalition um, promises. And they said uh, about three days ago that uh, the bulk of those demands had not been met. Uh, basically, um, being uh, the diplomatic post- postings to senior Fiji missions overseas and also representation on the boards of um, uh, key government entities. So tell us what happened at this meeting and more importantly, moving forward, what resolutions did they come to to ensure that, you know, there isn't a rift amongst the coalition? That's right. And and Talia, from the very beginning, this coalition, the People's Coalition government, had been described as quite a fragile coalition because if you remember, it took them a week. It took Sadalpa a week to decide whether they were going to go into coalition with, you know, the People's Coalition, the People's Alliance Party and the National Federation Party or whether they would actually side with uh, Fiji First, who they had not enjoyed a very productive relationship with for for almost 10 years. Um, So very public uh, discontent actually caused a little bit of anxiety here in Fiji because there was talk of you know completely uh, a change of government, a completely new look uh, um, uh, parliament and things like that. But um, thankfully, there was a meeting yesterday of all of the MPs, sorry, of senior MPs from the three parties, as well as senior party officials. Uh, it looked very jovial. It looked quite pleasant. Um, it, it looked like, um, you know, afternoon tea. And at the end of that, um, speaking on behalf of the coalition was uh, People's Alliance Party MP and Deputy Prime Minister Manuel Kamkamida, as well as, of course, the other deputy MP and head of the National Federation Party, Dr. Biman. Prasad, both of whom were eager to say that things were ironed out. What um, caught me in terms of what the two men said is this was a communication breakdown. There is room for improvement in the way we communicate with each other. So that's what it comes down to. But we do know, Talia, that at the end of this month, 
11th, uh, sometime around the 28th, 29th of June, the People's Coalition government will be announcing its first ever budget, and we can expect the announcement of the reopening of Fiji's embassy in Washington, D.C., and we can pretty much know now that that ambassador will be a senior party official from Sedelpa. So it turns out that meeting was going to have an impact. Um, of course, Lithe, as you said, Sedelpa were the kingmakers following that December election result. And Fiji First General Secretary Ayaz Syed Kayum yesterday said the party missed an opportunity by not siding with the Fiji First Party. Have a listen. What we had offered them in that week when we went to negotiate with them was far better than what they are getting done. Would have actually ensured longevity for their party. And so, unfortunately, they did not weren't wise enough to look at the long term, unfortunately. But, of course, uh, earlier this morning, um, Professor Bimam Prasad told the program that the coalition was strong and was united. Um, you know, where is Fiji first in all of this? Are they just kind of, I guess, as a political party, taking advantage and, you know, hitting out when they can to make it seem like the coalition isn't stable? Well, look, I think we can safely assume that. We can safely assume, you know, that they're right there to pick up the pieces if this coalition agreement does fall apart. However, um, in addition to Kam Kamitha and Dr. Prasad uh, speaking very highly of, of this agreement, I did also speak with Rote Mumu Kepa, who is um, a senior party official, used to be the leader of opposition, and of course, a Sadelpa stalwart and, uh, and former MP. And I also spoke with, um, if you're Vasu, who is a senior cabinet member in, in the People's Coalition government. And they're all saying the same thing, which is, you know, it all is good. We're talking through it. We're working through it. And this coalition is going to last for the for the four years of, of, of this term. Um, but the, the thing that did catch my attention, however, is Roti Mumukepa did say, uh, look, it's common knowledge that we talked to Fiji first and they are right there. So uh, we can assume that Fiji First is still pretty much in the picture, but without the um, services and the energy of Frank Bainamarama and Aya Said Kiyum, there's very little that Fiji First can actually do by way of their contribution in Parliament. So um, it, it, we can assume that Fiji First is going to be right there watching everything, and especially now with the national budget coming up, because aside from you know running the economic uh, plan for for the government, the budget does tell us whether or not this government is able to come through on more of the election promises, the ones that they promised their coalition partners and the ones that they promised the people of Fiji. Absolutely. You're listening to ABC Fiji's oh, Pacific, <laughs> Fiji is Pacific, ABC's Fiji reporter, Lithe Mavono, because I was going to ask there, Lithe, that, you know, comments online to this, what seems like inner party squabbling rather. Um, doesn't seem to be addressing those matters of national interest. So how are everyday Fijians seeing this play out and what do they want this coalition government to focus on? Well, I think the, the very first response that caught my attention online when um, Sudalpa pretty much told everyone they were unhappy is um, when, when they put out their list of grievances, 
a, a comment that caught my eye was, I don't see grievances based on policy or on people. It's all about the promises made to them. So there's there's a lot of disappointment um, towards Sadelpa, and, and this is not new, uh, Talia. Sadelpa has lost quite a lot of favor and quite a lot of uh, ground insofar as, you know, their political uh, popularity goes. Um, how, people were anxious, I think, because, um, you know, here things pol- can be politically volatile, things can change very quickly, and our history doesn't really give people much to be comforted by. Um, however, I think it must be, they must be credited with moving quickly to talk about things. Um, it's worrying that in a country so small and a capital even smaller, that the, everyone is saying the key problem here was communication, that they're not talking to each other. So uh, one hopes that this is the only um, uh, reason for fragility within this coalition. So many things come down to just good communication, doesn't it, from <laughs> politics, from media, just from everyday relations. Um, finally, Lithe, while I've got you um, on the line, um, the Prime Minister, Sidavani Rambuka, also this week announced a minor reshuffle of the Cabinet. What's going on there? Well, it's pretty much one one appointment, and it's Lenora Gerngertumbua of the National Federation Party, who is the Deputy Speaker of Parliament and who had been the Assistant Minister in the uh, portfolio that looks after local government and environment. So this is a major promotion uh, for um, Honourable Gerngertumbua to be moved into Assistant Minister in the Foreign Affairs portfolio. That uh, position is brand new. It, it It's one of of um, Prime Minister Sitiveni Rambuka's portfolios, and it's most definitely an important portfolio given that, um, given the geopolitical competition that's happening in the region and that seems to be um, more heavily felt here in Suva, where all of the Pacific uh, organizations are headquartered. So it's a, it's a very important uh, appointment and one that speaks, I guess, to um, Lenora's increasing importance in this cabinet. Um, as the Deputy Speaker of Parliament, my understanding is that she can't really be a minister. She can't head um, a cabinet portfolio. But being an assistant to the prime minister is is, is very close to that, um, uh, Talia. And I, I have been asking around with senior members of the cabinet whether we can expect more reshuffle, whether this is a reshuffle um, that we've been hearing rumors about, but apparently it is not. It is an appointment on a, as is uh, on a needs basis, rather. Mm, and it just goes to show if you've got needs within the foreign affairs portfolio, just how important those geopolitical and geostrategic conversations are. Lithe Mavono, thank you so much for joining Pacific Beat. Always appreciate your insights. Vinaka Vakalevu. Thank you. That was Lithe Mavono, ABC's Fiji reporter, joining me there. You're listening to Pacific Beat with me, Talia Oletia. Let's go to Vanuatu now because the head of an official investigation into Vanuatu's controversial citizenship by investment scheme says there will be no sugarcoating in its final report. Also known as Golden Passports, the scheme allows foreigners to purchase citizenship and obtain a passport without actually setting foot in the country. It's a major revenue earner, but there have been allegations undesirable characters, including 
are wanted criminals have been given passports. And so in March, the government announced a commission of inquiry into the scheme. Inquiry Chairman Glenn Craig says the issue came to a head when the European Union temporarily suspended visa-free entry for Vanuatu passport holders last year. That was all to do with uh, EU concerns, rightly or wrongly. They've decided that there were some concerns around the Development Support Programme, which is Vanuatu's Citizenship by Investment Programme. So Vanuatu is one of nine countries in the in the world that have such programs, and the EU's uh, decided that there's deficiencies. And so because of that, the previous government uh, didn't respond uh, according to the EU adequately in time to the concerns, nor actually meet um, to any great detail. And so the government put a uh, commission of inquiry together to look at what went wrong. And obviously commission of inquiry is there to look at what went wrong, who was responsible and how we can improve it and fix it. That's what we're there to do. This has been a controversial issue for some time. It's a major source of revenue from the government. Will you, do you think, be able to get to the bottom of some of these questions, whether passports have been issued to people of, you know, questionable backgrounds, people that shouldn't have been issued passports, whether the Citizenship Commission has uh, broken any rules or potentially officials have acted corruptly? Will you be able to answer those questions, do you think? Um, I, I don't want to preempt, obviously, the outcome, as you can imagine, but we do have wide-ranging powers. So they've asked us specifically to look at the Department of Finance, at the Financial Investigation Unit, at the Citizenship Commission itself, and also the Ministry or Department of Immigration, which is passports. So that's the focus of the Commission of Inquiry. It's to look at those key four areas and then under the wide-ranging powers we have, we have subpoena powers. So subpoenas will be issued, and I don't think that's any big uh, secret. So the Commission of Inquiry, normally what it would do was look at the information that it requires and do a, re- uh, a request to those departments. And then once that information's come in, the Commission's then going to look at the information, collate it, go through it, or we expect it'll be a significant amount of information, and then we'll undertake... Uh, developing a witness list and then calling people before the commission. And at that point in time, we'll have documents, we'll have the uh, witness testimony, and then we can start to go through and just match up to see if there's any deficiencies uh, in the information that's been provided. And then we can do a round of follow-ups. But certainly I wouldn't be taking on the role, which, frankly speaking, is, is controversial. You don't make a lot of friends in doing that. I'm not taking on the role that it's just going to be sugarcoating anything. It will, the results will be the results, and, and it's what I do for a job. So I'm looking forward to actually uh, getting in there and just seeing how we can improve it because it is a significant revenue in it, and we want to make sure that countries that we, are, that we align with are happy with the program as much as they can be because without it, frankly, the Vanuatu economy would be down the Google right now after COVID. What's the timeline? Well, it started now. They were a month behind, obviously. Um, no secret again that, that uh, due to a potential perceived conflict of interest, uh, several members, including myself, were removed from the commission. And then the government did an about-face and appointed, uh, appointed us back on the commission. We weren't consulted about it, uh, but I can say that the commission will be running very, very transparently. Everything above board and, and people are, will... It's going to be a publicly available document uh, when it's all done. So we hope to have everything completed within the next 90 days. You just mentioned there that the document will be made publicly available, uh, your final report. Will the actual hearings, witness testimonies be made public, do you know? 
Uh, no, under the appointment, we've been told to have them in confidence uh, because it is around citizenship, which is uh, sovereign documents, and then obviously people that have that have made, uh, you know, that have got that got their citizenship. Uh, we're trying to keep that information confidential. Um, well, not trying to; it will be kept confidential. If officials so wish, at their discretion, that they wish it to be made public, then absolutely we would make it public. I'm all for an open, um, transparent process, but uh, for those concerned to make sure that they can freely give their testimony without fear of any vindication or, or retribution, then we'll probably hold the sessions under a closed environment um, and, and it will be up to the, the witnesses themselves on whether or not they want the public there. We'll give them that option. That was Glenn Craig, Chairman of the Commission of Inquiry into Vanuatu's Citizenship by Investment Scheme, talking there to Liam Fox. Reptiles from southwest Queensland have become a much sought-after animal in the international illegal trade of wildlife smuggling. Experts have seen a rise in reptiles being detected by Australia Post, cruelly packed, ready to leave our shores. Warren Christensen is the manager of Southern Wildlife Operations with Queensland Parks and Wildlife and spoke with Danielle Lancaster about the illegal trade of wildlife being smuggled from western Queensland. When people think of of wildlife smuggling, the first thing that comes to mind invariably is elephant tusks, tigers, lions, all that sort of African big game type stuff. But Australian reptiles are overwhelmingly the most commonly trafficked live native animal, with native lizards in particular, followed by snakes and occasionally birds, highly sought after across Europe, Southeast Asia, East Asia and North America. It's a thriving business. So we're talking about the most common animals that we that sometimes we see in Australia. So these are things that you would certainly out in your area uh, and even in local backyards. These are things like blue tongue lizards. These are shinglebacks, bearded dragons. But it's basically what is known in the regular terms least concern native wildlife. So these are pretty much what we would regard as fairly commonplace animals here in Australia, but once they get overseas, they are, they're very highly sought after and worth quite a deal of money. Southwest Queensland has become a hotspot for wildlife smugglers. Why? Because it's got some really fascinating species. I mean, we might think that we're fairly used to them, but when you look at things like, a, say, a shingleback, and, and shinglebacks from certainly that southwest Queensland are, are some of the most commonly taken animals. So when we get close to the coastline, we're looking at blue tongues, but when we get out into that western Queensland, shinglebacks are definitely the the primary target. They're euphemistically referred overseas as pine cone lizards because of the the, the nature of the scales on them. And you think of some of the colorings that you get on those, you get the nice yellows on black, white on black. They are a very unique looking animal and very much sought after. What is the value of a shingleback on the black market at the moment? It is difficult to tell. Like any business, it depends on what the customer is willing to pay and that will depend upon the quality of the animal and any unique colourings or or features on it. But certainly in what we do know, a lot of species, generally speaking, are going anywhere from about, say, $3,500 US all the way up to to just over $7,000 US. Australian reptiles, depending upon the type and depending upon the market, can be up to 28 times their domestic price, but are regularly at least five to 10 times what you would get for them domestically. So if you're looking at $1,000, you could be looking at anywhere for five to $10,000. 
That's a lot of money. Where does wildlife smuggling fit in to the items being traded internationally? We've got drugs, we've got weapons. The illegal wildlife trade is regarded, and this is on on international reckoning, as the fourth largest form of international organised crime. It sits just behind drug, human and arms trafficking. The industry is valued, and it's a fairly broad valuation here because, again, it depends upon the nature of the animals being trafficked. But the industry is valued at between seven and 23 billion US per annum. That's not not just Australia species, that's internationally. Could you give us an explanation of how the process is actually undertaken? Sadly, when we start talking about wildlife trafficking, it's no different than any other business enterprise. That's the whole point with organised crime. So you'll have people who are suppliers. They're the people that actually go out and and take these animals from the wild, um, as you're seeing out in the areas that you're talking about, the shinglebacks. You'll then get people that are responsible for transporting that product to the next destination, which in Australia tends to be put through Australia Post and then sent to some sort of overseas distribution network. So generally it's taken from the wild by somebody who really knows their business, is then transported to an an urban centre and placed into the post. And then will go to countries like Hong Kong, China, all those sorts of destinations. There's been new x-ray imaging that has been put in place last year. How is this assisting? Because a lot of these animals go out through Australia Post, they go out through various distribution centres. Australia Post and Border Force work together with different scanning techniques. So they use high-level scanning. They also have sniffer dogs. They have a range of things, but the scanning is very much in play. And what that does is it can see inside the package, a bit like an X-ray, and it can detect these animals inside the packaging separately from uh, from other things. Certainly, we see... Well, what we can never be entirely certain of this because we don't know what we don't know, but certainly it would appear on, on the intelligence that, that we have that it's more likely for people to actually try and transport animals via mechanisms like Australia Post and to try and carry them on them in terms of hopping onto a flight or something like that. One of the beauties and one of the problems that we have, of course, with Australian native animals, they're extremely robust. You think of the environments that our reptiles live in. So they can survive without water. They can survive without food for long periods of time. They, they can become quite dormant when they're in stressed conditions. So they're almost custom made to be put into packages and sent overseas. I will add, though, that it's an incredibly cruel process. How do some of these people go about concealing the animals? They'll place small geckos and even larger lizards, generally speaking, inside a sock or something similar to that. In case of some of the bigger lizards, this is where it gets particularly cruel. They'll actually tape their legs, uh, both hind and and rear legs, to their bodies to to restrict their movement. And then they're put in close confines in those. And they can be in those for anywhere from a few days to weeks. So it's, it's, it's a very, very cruel process. For those animals that are discovered, what is the survival rate and what actually happens with those animals? So an animal that comes into, gets caught you know, up in this network, it can never be released back into the wild. So that's the first problem. We don't know exactly where they've come from, some of them from other jurisdictions like Western Australia or the Northern Territory, and you just can't send them back because, of course, Once they've been taken from the wild, they've got to come back to pretty close to where they came from. Also, you don't know if they've been exposed to other diseases and that that you can get within the domesticated reptile network that we don't want getting out into the 
into into the wild. So disease risk and putting animals back into the appropriate environment makes it exceptionally difficult to return animals back to the wild. There is, depending upon the type of animal, a fair number that can die as a result of, of the process. That was Warren Christensen from Queensland Parks and Wildlife. And that brings us to the end of Pacific Beat for this morning. Recapping our top story, Fiji's Deputy Prime Minister Biman Prasad reignites calls for visa-free travel between Australia, Aotearoa, New Zealand and Pacific Island states. We need a much more integrated region, not just from the geopolitical point of view or the Indo-Pacific strategy point of view, but purely from an economic point of view, a social point of view. And Jacob Maguire will be up next after the news with Nisha Daily, where they'll be looking at Samoan women's tatau. As for me, I'll be back at the same time tomorrow morning for more Pacific Beat. I'm Talia Olatia, Fa'afatai le fa'alongalongu, tofa soifua. <laughs> 